Generations Church, good morning. Welcome back to service. We are in 1 Samuel 8. If you will open up there, if you're still open there, as Alex uh, read to us out of 1 Samuel 8 for a liturgy reading, uh, as we move into Israel getting its first king, I want to just kind of put a, a, a timeline or a marker on our life and how I see these things kind of correlating, a place where we can ask ourselves, how do we fit into this story? And so this last week, we had the inauguration of a new president. Maybe you're super happy about that. Maybe you're upset about that. Maybe you're, you know, it's kind of ambivalent or don't really care, whatever. Uh, we know that in this moment where we are, we know where the world around us is, that there are kind of heated ideas on both sides. We also know that the culture around us if we're all honest, it's probably not what God would have it to be. And that's and not, just, not just the culture of America, but the culture of the church, right? That the people in the church, we are not all that we think God has created us to be. And so that allows us to arrive here on Sundays, open God's word, expect that Jesus will speak to us, reveal to us a place where we can turn towards him, whether that be turning away from things that we need not to do, or turning towards things we need to do, right? Or, or falling more in love with Jesus, or, or falling away from sin, all, all those different things. And so I want to start with kind of a main idea for today, and we'll put this on the screen. So give us a king is the cry that they have. Israel demands a king like the other nations, rather than being led by God. And what can we learn from Israel about our own hearts. So if we take that and, and ask ourselves today, how are we like that? How can we learn about our own hearts as we look at that today? First Samuel chapter 8, let's start back in verse 1. It says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Ultimately, the same thing takes place again. Now, we're used to kind of looking at Eli, and Eli was this kind of old jaded priest, and, and he overlooked the, son, the sins of his sons. I mean, yes, he did talk to them once that we know about and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong, but he let them continue in this. And we know that God took the ministry from him because of his complicity in the corruption, even inside their worship system. This is in the priests, right? And so God raises up a new leader in Samuel. We watch Samuel grow up, and Samuel honor God, and we watch as the voice of God starts shifting over and speaking to Samuel after a season of silence. And so now we get Samuel in play. He's the prophet. He's the one that God speaks to. He goes, and he shares this with God's people, helps lead God's people. But it's, this is the first time we've ever heard about him even any, any, any older, like heard him about it as a kid, and clearly he becomes an adult by last week's message, but now he has sons. And the first thing we hear is his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And so we see the same thing take place again. And it's not that Samuel doesn't love God and isn't pursuing God. We know he is. And so we look back, we see Eli's sons are corrupt, then we see Samuel's sons are corrupt, and what we have to take away from this is that there's something common that is, that is common throughout not just their sons, because they're very different people, or our children, or us, right? That there is something common, and that there is inside of us something that's broken. So we'll put this back up on the screen. Scripture reveals that humanity is terminally sinful. 
We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. What I want you to hear is we don't, we don't sin that makes us sinners, right? We sin because of who we are, right? Out of the overflow of our heart, Jesus says, the mouth speaks. It's who we are that bubbles up out of us and reveals who we are. We are sinners, therefore we sin, right? We don't do something that makes us that. We're that by nature. Now, it may sound like a play on words, but what it's recognizing is that by nature, we're sinful, we're depraved, we're totally depraved, right? That all aspects of our life have been affected and influenced by sin from before our birth. It's what we inherit. Sin is something we inherit, again, all the way from Adam forward. And so what we see is even though Samuel loves God and is pursuing God and, 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 and is living the way God has called him to live and is the prophet God is using, his sons are corrupt. We see Eli, who's kind of a, a complacent priest, his sons are corrupt. And so now fast forward 3,000 years to us, and we look around and sometimes what we see is corruption, even coming out of good places, right? What we would consider good places, out of the church, out of our own homes, what we have to recognize is there's just sin inside of us. That's what we're talking about. There's sin in our culture, there's sin in us, and this comes out and creates the world that we live in. Now, all we can really control is us, right? All we can really do is we can't, we can't fix everybody outside, we can't change the world around us really, by, but unless what we do is collectively look inwardly and change ourselves, and collectively as a church, change ourselves. So, verse 4 says this, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now here's the line that matters in this sentence for us today. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations, right? So they want a king they want a king to judge them instead of the judges, instead of the prophets, instead of the people that they've had. They've had bad experiences with some of the people, and then others like Samuel, they have good experiences, but they're tired of corruption. And so what they say is, we want a king, but here's what's important. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. They look at the world around them that they live in. They look at the nations that they border. They look at the people that they've displaced in their land, the Canaanites, the Hivites, all the others, right? And they look at them and they say, all those people have kings. Those kings rule over them. They judge them. They lead them. They have kings. We want a king, right? All we have is God who speaks through some people sometimes, and we have God's rules. We don't have a king. We want a king to judge us like all the nations. They're crying out, we want to be like the world around us. Verse 6, it says, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. So I just want you to kind of set yourself back 3,000 years ago. As God has led Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, right, into the wilderness, through the wilderness, miraculously through the wilderness, providing bread, manna, right, each day, providing water, sometimes miraculously, providing meat at night, miraculously, all these things, a cover of cloud in the day, a pillar of fire at night. God has done all these amazing things for the people. And even in their rejection of him, remains with them. And then 40 years later, he brings them into the land. If you've been 
following along with the daily readings online, or you're in a community group and you're working through the Read Scripture app, you've probably covered a good chunk of Joshua. It tells the story of coming out of the wilderness into the land that they're in now. Now, that's the setting. God has been leading them, literally, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, literally leading them. At one point, God is meeting with Moses up on Mount Sinai, and he says, I don't want it to be this way. I want to be among my people. So he gives Moses these long, very detailed instructions of how to make a tabernacle, a a worship tent, if you will, where God can meet with them. And then God's presence resides in the center of it, away from the people, but in the midst of the people. And so instead of being up on a mountain, God resides with the people. And God has desired to lead the people, guide them, give them the covenant, give them the law, and then allow them to hear where they're off through prophets, through priests, worship. But they don't want that. They want to be like the people around them. They want to be like the nations around them. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. He says, Samuel, listen, don't take this personally. And side note, people in leadership, uh, you know, prophets, pastors, you know, I'm sure governors or presidents, I don't know who it is, but people take those things personally. We feel like, okay, here we are invested in this, this about me. And Samuel here has got to be thinking, okay, I've been leading the people. I've been faithful to God. I've been faithful to the people. Now they want a king to judge over them. He says, you know, I can imagine him saying, I get it, my sons are, are, are jacked up and, and that needs to change, but I've been leading the people. And God just reminds him, listen, this isn't a rejection of you. This is a rejection of me, God says, right? Really, the people are rejecting what God has created. He's rejecting how he has chosen to lead his people. God will emphasize that later too. He will say over and over again, my people, my people, my people. These are my people, he will say. So God knows it's a rejection of him. Now just, again, think, okay, now we're the church 3,000 years later, around the other side of the globe. Here we are, right? And, And we do this. There's a way that God would have us to live. And when we do that, it's not a rejection of the system that we're in or the church that we belong to. Really, there's a rejection of God. At some level, we all, when we, when we choose to go our own way, we're rejecting God. We're saying, God, I know you know better, but right now in this moment, I think I know better. And I know what you have said, but I'm going to go my own way. And, and ultimately, that's what we call sin. And so the sin of the people right now is their rejection of God's way of living, God's way of leading them, And they want to be like the world they live in rather than being like God's people. That's something we can look at for ourselves today. So verse 8, according to all the deeds, God's still speaking to Samuel, according to all the deeds that they have done, from a day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so they sin because they're sinners, right? They're sinful people, so they do sinful things because inside their heart, they have sin that lives in the curse of sin, the depravity inside of them. And so ultimately what they do is they want to be the world around them rather than be God's people. So rather than live the way God has called, they want to live like the people in the nations around them. So they say, give us a king. And God says, ultimately, they're rejecting me, right? They're rejecting what I have called them to. And then he says, now, Samuel, I want you to give them what they ask for. 
Except before you do, I want you to warn them what it will look like to have a king over them. Tell them what it will look like. So let's read this passage where Samuel does that. So verse 10, it says, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king from him. He said, These are the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them as, to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and some to reap his harvest, and to make implements of war, and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, and cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, and vineyards, and olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain, and of your vineyards, and give it to his officers, and to his servants. He will take your male servants, and female servants, and the best of your young men, and your, young, and your donkeys, and they will put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So I want you to hear this. Here's kind of a snapshot, those, that long passage. Here's seven things that he says will happen when you have a king reign over you. He says someone will reign over you. First of all, someone is going to be an authority over you, Right? He says, number two, they'll take your kids to war. They will say, your sons need to go to battle to fight my war, right? Number three, he'll appoint his own leaders and make his own rules, right? He will do that. He'll reign over you. He'll send your kids off to war. He'll appoint his own leaders, his own rules. Number four, he'll enrich himself at your cost. You will be forced labor, slave labor to him. You will work. He will get wealthy, right? Number five, he will subject your children to work and to debt. Number six, he will tax you and take your money for himself. Number seven, you will complain when it takes place. And that's kind of funny because you could read those seven things and really ask the question, are we talking about today? Are we talking about back then, right? Here it is, someone will reign over you. In our last election series, now, and, and I say this neutrally, no matter which side you voted for, part of the talking points were this guy is going to reign over, he's going to change everything, or he's going to do this, right? This one's going to take your kids to war. This one's going to appoint his own leaders and his own rule. Just think of all the conversations about the Supreme Court justices and other, uh, uh, other courts. He'll enrich himself at your cost. Seems like everybody who goes in comes out wealthier somehow, some way, right? He'll subject your children to work and to debt. Right, every time those checks come in the mail right now, I think about as they, the stimulus checks or the, the stimulus packages, right? None of that is free. Shows up in your mailbox or in your checking account or whatever, and, and you're just like, free money, great. Well, no, because all of that is being piled upon the next generation, right? We know we're enslaving our kids in debt as we work ourselves through this pandemic. Now, again, I say this neutrally. I don't have a, I don't have a solution for the pandemic, right? I can't cure the virus, and I can't cure the economy. But we know nothing's free. We know that when we say, oh, free tuition, or we say, oh, free stimulus check, we know none of it's free. We know it's all coming out of our taxes, right? So the sixth one, he'll tax you and take your money. And seven, you will complain when it happens, right? How much complaining do we hear each time? And then for the four years that follow, we complain about the person who won. Now, again, it doesn't matter which 
section of presidential history you're in. This was true when Obama was in. It was true when Bush was in. It was true when Trump was in. Now it's true when Biden is in, right? We look at our settings and someone's always complaining. So let's just take this again out of America because Israel does not equal America, right? Israel's a nation being led by God, a theocracy who wanted a king, a monarchy, right? We are not a theocracy. We're not a monarchy, and so we have to take this and remember that the fulfillment of Israel is not America. The fulfillment of Israel is the church globally, historically. And we really can't control the church on the other side of the world. So we have to boil this down to the church here in America, or even better yet, just us, Generations Church. How do we, and we have people on all sides of the aisle, how do we do this? How do we say, I want to look like the world around us. Give us leaders like them. Give us them. And, and then God says, listen, careful what you ask for. They'll tax you. They'll send you to war. They'll take your money. They'll have your money. You'll complain, but I'm not going to listen. That's what God says to Israel. So listen to what they want. Verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. No, we don't care what you say. There will be a king over us. Verse 20, that we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want to be like the nations. That's probably the most disconcerting statement that is, and they repeat it over and over again that I read as we read this. They're saying, I want to be like the world that doesn't follow you. I want to live like them. Yeah, I want to go to heaven. Yeah, I want to call you my God, but I want to do it my way. I want to do what is right in my own eyes, not what you tell me to do, God. In fact, when I look around, looks like that nation over there or that group over there looks like they're having fun. Looks like they're having more fun than I am. I like what they look, what it looks like. Look, they got a nice shiny new car. Oh, look how big their house is. Oh, look, he doesn't just have one wife or one girlfriend. Oh, look, I want to be like the nations around us. That's what they keep saying right? We want a human being, they say, to judge us. Listen to those words. No one ever throughout history has said, I want this guy over here to tell me all that I'm doing wrong. And yet that's what they say. Now, of course they don't want that. They don't want somebody else to tell them what they're doing wrong. They don't like it when God tells them or when the prophet tells them. They're not listening. They just keep figuring if we keep looking for someone new to tell me how to live, maybe somebody will actually finally say the things I'm already doing. And so it'll just sound like what I'm living like. Here's the other thing. We want a human being to fight our wars and to win our battles. So we want somebody to tell us right from wrong, right? We want somebody to lead us. We want somebody to protect us. Isn't that what God's supposed to do for us? Aren't those the very things that God is supposed to do for us, right? But didn't we just vote on a president thinking all the same things? We want someone to protect us. We want someone to save us from the virus. We want someone to lead us and set a trajectory. We want somebody to tell the other people, what they're doing wrong, right? Never us, but them. I'm going to put this on the screen. Why we vote for a candidate. America voted about a pandemic, economy, judicial law, and national security, and then equity for all people. Now, I'm not saying those things are wrong or bad, but we voted a person to fix those things. Aren't those what we're supposed to be trusting in God for? Aren't we supposed to be trusting in God for how we are to live? Aren't we supposed to trust in God for our provision? Aren't we supposed to trust in God for our protection? Aren't we supposed to 
bring our concerns like the pandemic, the virus, our health, our security, the economy. Shouldn't we be trusting in God who actually has the power to do that? But instead, we yell at the top of our voices about a candidate or a team, a party, and that this one will fix it or this one will fix it. And we watch as the pendulum swings back and forth throughout history, and it goes from this side over here, and the other side complains, and it kind of comes back, and this side complains, and this side's all happy, and then they lose it again, and it keeps going. But God remains the same. God is the one who can fix the pandemic. God is the one who can keep us safe. In fact, God is the one who is our hope if we should succumb to the virus. God can heal our land, yet we trust in people. Verse 21. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. There's a famous quote by Thomas Jefferson that says this, the government you elect is the government you deserve. The government you elect is the government you deserve. So you deserve Trump, you deserve Biden, you deserve Obama, you deserve Bush, you deserve Clinton, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like you get the people you deserve because you vote them in, right? We have to learn from, okay, this is what we said we wanted. We wanted this kind of king, And so we got this one. He was young and articulate and kind of cool, and he won for eight years, and that was Obama. And the fact that he was black was like big bonus points, but he was young and hip and cool. He was very different than the old establishment of the Bushes. And then people didn't like that, and people figured, okay, well, there's flaws over here too. So we want an anti-establishment guy. So we'll go get a billionaire who comes in, and he's just a business guy. He's not a politician. And so he comes in, and everybody's like, yeah, let's just ignore his Twitter account, but he's got some really good ideas, and then he wins. And then for four years, everybody else complains, and we get over here, and now we've got this one. And that's our cycle back and forth, because truly, we can't find our hope in flawed human beings. We know, again, in the very center of all of us, is corruption. It's sin. We know we're all flawed. We know everyone else is flawed. 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. This is how Israel will choose their king. He says, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorah, the son of Aphah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. All right, so here's the deal. We want a king like the nations around us. So let's pick out a king. So here's our king. Here's our checklist. All right, so he comes from a wealthy family. He's good looking and he's tall. Okay, so I'm never going to make it on any of those things. First off, not tall, right? And so definitely not wealthy, and the good-looking one's probably not going to happen either, right? So I'm never going to be king. That's what I've come to the conclusion of. But we're now choosing people by their immutable traits. We're choosing Saul now because he comes from a wealthy family, so he was born into a family who had money. He didn't pick that, right? And so then he's tall. He didn't pick that either. Trust me, I've tried, right? And he's good-looking. Again, an immutable trait, he got lucky when he was born. All things that have nothing to do with him being king. But that's what we're told, and it will be repeated to us that that's how people know Saul. And if you know much about this story, it doesn't go super well with Saul. 
right? Now, again, I don't care who you voted for. The voting is done. The inauguration is done. We have a president and a vice president. They're in the office. Say what you will, right? But I remember the conversation when Biden had won the, uh, in the primary, right? And it was going to go to the general election. And the conversation was, I'm going to have a black female or a woman of color will be my running mate. And then he vetted a bunch of people. And I remember thinking, we're going to pick as the primary thing an immutable trait that no one can control. Kind of if we reversed that, well, okay, I'm going to pick a white dude. The world would have exploded, Right? Because that doesn't help anything. That was the entire problem back in the, in the 18th century and the 19th century was, was, was saying things about people, treating people or judging people based on an appearance they couldn't control. That was happening 3,000 years ago. And again, you would think we would learn from some history. You'd think you'd, we'd learn from our own history that the color of your skin won't fix, that you can't judge people like that, you can't treat people like that. And you think if we couldn't learn from our own history, we'd look back at Israel's history and say, okay, you chose a king because he was tall and good looking and had a rich family. Like, how is this going to help? Now, who knows what Kamala is going to look like? She'll be our vice president. We'll get to see. But why would we choose someone? And, and for whatever worse, maybe she's got all kinds of things going on for whatever. That's a whole different conversation. But to say, I'm going to pick someone because of something they can't even control, or something that has nothing to do with the role we're talking about, why do we, why do we live like that? And why has this been going on for 3,000 years, and nobody's figured out, hey, that doesn't actually make you a good king just because you're tall, right? I might be a stellar king, and I'm not tall. Who knows? Nobody's going to make me king, so we don't have to figure that out. But verse 3, now the donkeys of Kish, uh, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men out with you and arise and go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through all the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of, of Shalashah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalayim, and they were not there. But then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. And when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. So here we go. Wealthy, tall, good-looking, out can't find donkeys. Not a good start to the man who will be king, right? But he does realize all at some point, like, hey, we've been looking for these donkeys for a long time. We've gone into multiple places. We don't know where they are. Pretty soon, my dad's not going to care about the donkeys. He's going to wonder where I am. Now I'm lost, right? And so let's go back. Verse 6. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he's a man who is held in honor. Let's talk about Samuel. And all that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? So mental note, if you just want to put this aside, if you ever want to go see a prophet or a priest or a pastor, right? Bring a gift. Love coffee, cookies, right? Food. Food's always good, Right? Like, hey, what are we going to go do? Like, we're going to go ask this guy, the man of God, the guy who always says stuff that comes true. We're not going to go ask him to how to have a better life. We're not going to go ask him that question we've been dying to ask about our faith for so long. None of that. We're going to ask him, hey, I can't find my donkeys. Can you help? Right? So we better bring him something to eat. That's where we are. Verse 8, it says, Then the servant, then the servant ans oh, answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, parenthetical note, when a man went to inquire about God, he said, uh, he said, come let us go see the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. 
That's Samuel's parenthetical note to us. Verse 10, and Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. Sounds good, let's take the silver, right? So they went to the city where the man of God was, and they went up, to, up the hill to the city, and they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? And then they answered, he is, behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. So this high place comes up over and over again. We'll talk about that in a minute. He says, but for the people will not eat until he comes, see, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So basically, they ask the ladies, where is Samuel? They point him in the right direction. Okay, verse 14. Now, across town where the short, broke, and not attractive people are that love Jesus, though. Here we go, verse 14. So they went up to the city, and they were entering the city, and now Samuel coming out toward them, on his way up to the high place. I say that because none of them got to be king. That's all. Verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people. Listen to what God says and who he talks about. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people, right? Now, there's two things, right? There's, there's one, what's this guy going to do? Now, he's going to save him from the Philistines, which is great. He's going to militarily save them from an enemy. Great. But there's this other side that says he is going to restrain my people, He's actually going to oppress the people, God says. Like, they could be growing and, and achieving and doing this if they would just follow me, and they're on this trajectory, and things are aiming the right direction. I'm doing things in them, but instead, they want this king who's going to restrain them and kind of push them backwards, right? By having this man rule over them, it will actually restrain their prosperity. It will actually limit their growth and their strength. But all throughout, God says repeatedly, he will lead my people. He will do this. He will restrain. Even then, he says, my people. Because all along, it's still God's people, right? Part of the gospel for us is knowing that God created us and loves us, that he designed us, that we're his people. And even as we've sinned and we've run away from God, those of us who call Christ our Savior, who have trusted in him and, and placed our life in him because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that we've allowed him to conquer our sin and, and start working his way through the corruption inside of us. Those who of us who call ourselves Christians, we know that even when we're off track and, and going the wrong direction, that we're still God's people. We're still Christ's, right? Even when we're not on the, on the mark, even when we're rebelling, we're still God's people. And I love that he speaks about them in this way. Listen, they're not listening right now. They're, they're rejecting me, not you, he says to Samuel. They want this king. This king's not going to be good for them. Warn them. They're not really going to listen to you, though. But they're still my people. I still love them. I still have a plan for them. Yes, they're getting in the way of my plan. But ultimately, I will achieve my plan through them. The same thing is true today in the church, right? Jesus tells Peter, listen, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. My church will succeed. I wonder how much better it could be if we wouldn't get in the way, right? If we wouldn't restrain even ourselves from all that God wants to do. Verse 18, then Saul approached Samuel to the gate and he says, tell me, 
Where is the house of the seer? And Samuel answered Saul, and he said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you will eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and tell you all that is on your mind. Now, a little note I said about the high places. If you look back through Scripture, God got rid of the high places. The high places were the places where other nations used to worship their false gods, their idols. They would worship them up on high, exalted places. If you remember in the book of Exodus, our teaching series just before Christmas, there was God meeting with Moses up on Mount Sinai, up on a high place, right? He would meet with him up there. He'd call him up there. A cloud would descend, fire would descend on the mountain, and God would speak to Moses. But God gives Moses this plan. Listen, I don't want to be removed from my people. I want to be with my people, right? I want to come down. I want to be in the camp. And so he gives them these intricate instructions on how to build a tabernacle, a worship tent, right? And so he's going to set the tent, the tabernacle, in the middle of all the camp of the people, even out in the wilderness. And they'll, they'll have the tabernacle, and then three of the tribes will be here, and three of the tribes will be here, three here and three here. That's where the 12 tribes will all be, and in the center will be God. So they get into the land, they become more like the people, instead of making the land more like God would have it, they become more like the nations that God is displacing, all the way to where they say, listen, we want a king like the nations around us. But then we also see this in their worship practices. Instead of God being there in the midst of them, leading them present, visible, they do their worship up on the high places again. Again, they've pushed God off to this place, removed from them. And I say this only to point out, it's the culture that keeps shifting to look like the nations around that keeps drifting away from where God would have them, that the entire culture and community is moving away from God. We'll put this on the screen. Is culture more appealing than God? Christians today are more drawn towards the culture, what, what culture offers, money, sex, power, politics, than to what God offers. Like Israel, we get what we want. If we want to live like the culture around us, then we inherit the brokenness of the culture around us as well. If we want the kings of the world around us, then we're going to be subjected to what the kings do. If we're going to give ourselves to a political system and let it act as our savior, then we're going to be subjected to division and politics and broken leaders. That will be the net result because that's what we ask for. You get the government you deserve because you vote for it. But when you put all your heart and all your hope and all your trust in it, and then it never meets our expectations because we're asking from it what only God can do. It can't measure up. And so we find ourselves in this broken, polarized, shifting culture back and forth where no one ever seems to be happy. Verse 20, as for your donkeys, so Saul lost his donkeys, going to get them. Samuel says, as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them for they've been found. And for whom is it that all is, is desirable? And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? If not for you, and for all your father's house. It's a really weird line. It reads weird. It doesn't translate well. He's basically saying, of course they came home because you're what everybody wants to be. You're tall, you're good looking, you're wealthy. Of course it went right for you. You're going to be king. That's what Samuel is saying. Listen to the next verse. And Saul answered, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken this way to me? He kind of feigns humility a little bit. Like, yeah, I know. I'm the tall, good-looking dude with a lot of money. I get it. And I get it, Samuel, you're just a man of God. You're short, you're fat, you're weird. Okay, so here it is. And, and as, as Samuel says this to him, he even kind of feigns that humility a bit. Verse 22, 
Then Samuel took Saul and his young men and brought them to the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion that I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he laid down to sleep. And then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof. He says, up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both he and Samuel met and went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servants to pass on before us. And when they has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. So Samuel has this conversation with Saul. He says, listen, send all your servants away, all the people that came along with you to help you find the donkeys. I need to have a short one-on-one with you. 1 Samuel 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and he poured it on his head and he kissed him. And he said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Saul is anointed Israel's first king. Right now, Saul will fail them. Saul will actually go down in flames. There's this, this kind of big rise that we will see, and then an epic fail. He will fail morally. He will fail ethically. He will be betrayed, and he will betray people. He will become sinful and not a man who honors God, as will David who follows him, who is a, a great king but also has flaws, as does Solomon, the next king, also a great king but has flaws. Like, each human being that will come in will have different levels of following God, successes and failures, but one thing they all have in common, they're all flawed. What we need to do today is remember that Jesus is the true and greater king. Jesus, seated on the throne, is king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is the trustworthy king without flaw. Jesus is the eternal king who's not up for election again in four years, right? Doesn't serve as a term. He is the eternal king King of kings, Lord of lords. He's not just the savior of the world. He is the king of all kings. As we turn ourselves away from a flawed and broken system, as great as our nation is and as great as our system is, probably the best in the world, still flawed, still run by human beings, therefore flawed, right? As we turn that, we have to turn to something and we need to continually be turning to Jesus, There's this great contrast to wanting to be like the world or live like the world or be shaped like the world versus being shaped by Christ that is written about in 1 John. I'm going to close with two verses. 1 John 5, 19 says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Here's what John says to this church. He says, listen, we know that we're from God, but the entire world lies in the power of Satan, lies in the power of the evil one, right? We're from God. We're different. We're supposed to be different, right? We're not supposed to be bound by that. We're not even supposed to pursue that or, or desire that, that we're different. We're supposed to be a different people. But there's this contrast. There's the world and there's God's people. 1 John 5, 20 says this, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. In Christ, we actually have truth. In Christ, we actually have the answer. In Christ, we actually have the way God has revealed himself through Christ for us. So we don't have to get caught up in the fake king or the flawed president 
or the, the system that we live in, or the two-team jersey system of, public, of Republican and Democrat. We don't have to. We can just fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And that can allow us to live in this world and participate in the process and vote and, and believe and listen and learn and, and shape and be a part of the world we live in without placing all our hope and trust in the world we live in or the political party that's broken or the candidate who will inevitably fail us. Jesus is the true and greater king. Jesus is the true and greater president, if you will. The one that will never let us down. Let that be what we turn ourselves toward. Let's pray. Jesus, you are just that. You are king of kings and you are lord of lords. We are broken, we're flawed. We live in a culture that even accepts the way we're broken and flawed as normal Christianity. But Jesus, we want so much more from you. We want your spirit to reveal to us where we're flawed, where we're sinful, where we're missing the mark. Jesus, we want to turn, we want to follow you. We want to not place our trust in medicine, science, culture, leaders, politicians, whatever it might be. We want to trust you even for the things that are tangible around us like the virus, like the economy. Lord, help us. We'll never fix racism or bias with a political system. We will only ever fix it when we begin to learn that you have created all people and that everyone bears your image inside of them and is due equal respect. That equity goes out to all people because you created people. Humanity is your creation, not a random accident of science. And so God, help us to turn ourselves to you. Help us to, to be turned towards you. Cause us to follow you, our true and great and only king. Let, our place, our, let us place our trust, our security, our hope, our life in you. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.